And now, from the University of Chicago Institute of Politics and CNN Audio, The Axe Files, with your host, David Axelrod. Congressman Jim Clyburn of South Carolina played a major role in the story of this 2020 presidential campaign when his late endorsement of Joe Biden in the South Carolina primary led to a landslide victory that revived the Biden campaign and launched the former vice president to the nomination. But in South Carolina, Clyburn has long been a legend for his 60 years as a civil rights activist and political leader. And he's a force on Capitol Hill as the longtime Democratic whip, the number three leader in the House. I sat down with him this week to talk about the election, the tragic events in Kenosha, and his own extraordinary life. Here's that conversation. Congressman Jim Clyburn, it's good to see you again. Thank you. The legend has only grown since... Uh, Get out of here. <laughs> since uh, the uh, 2000s. The, the 2008, 9, 10 period when we right. uh, were working together. I w- want to talk to you about your amazing journey. But before we do, uh, I, I want to ask you about the convention last night and the general state of our uh, campaign right now, the politics right now. Did you, did you watch the uh, convention? Yes. Uh, I watched, uh, I don't think I watched the first two speakers, but from then on, I watched it uh, very closely. And um, was uh, just amazed. Uh, I don't know why I would have expected something different, but I thought uh, that what we saw last night was uh, just more uh, of division, more of wedge issues, more of, uh, of just a throwback to what I thought we had gotten beyond. I think I took uh, the president at his word when he said that uh, they would be uplifting. Uh, and I. You didn't feel uplifted? Not at <laughs> all. I don't see how anybody could have. Well, you know, you, you, you are one of the best politicians that I've run across. So you, you're a student of this. Obviously, he's, he was talking to his base uh, and uh, was feeding his base the red meat that, that motivates his base. Uh, some of that has to do with race, obviously, but he did feature a couple of uh, your fellow South Carolinians uh, last night uh, in uh, Go- Governor Haley and Senator Scott, um, and they were there, uh, I-, I assume in part, to provide a sense of diversity and-, and to give him some cover on that issue. What was your reaction to their uh, remarks? Because Scott went after Joe Biden pretty hard on uh on on issues of race yes it did i um i was a little bit uh taken aback you know i did not uh i was not surprised that he would be uh, pro-trump um i was a little bit surprised that he was so anti-biden uh the fact of the matter is when you look at uh, the voting patterns uh here in south carolina uh, the February 29th uh, primary. Uh, everybody expected Joe to do uh, well uh, among African-American voters, not quite as well as he did. I don't think anybody expected that. Um, and everybody uh, who looked back missed something. And that is, and it was around Charleston, uh, where you saw uh, white voters, independent voters, voted in the Democratic primary that had not voted in the Democratic primary in a long time. Those numbers were very surprising to me. And so uh, I was a little bit taken aback when, uh, when Tim uh, went after Joe as much as he did. Uh, I've been saying a lot of people shocked when I called Joe Biden an adopted son of South Carolina. Joe Biden is spend more time in South Carolina than any other place outside of Delaware. Uh, and so uh, I'm not surprised that it did so well. Um, I was a, a little bit, I was pleased, but a little bit surprised that he had a 29-vote uh, 
29%. Well, I was going to get to this later, but I should ask you, I mean, this a lot of that expanded margin is attributable to you, uh, is it not? I mean, your endorsement turned out to mean a great deal to the vice president then. Well, um, that's what the uh, surveys indicated after the vote. I think the... Uh, Must have been gratifying. It, it is. It is. Um, but, you know, I was following uh, my heart. My late wife was just such a big fan of Joe and Jill. Uh, and before she passed away, we had talked about it a, a whole lot. And then the Friday before uh, the South Carolina debate, uh, an elderly lady sitting on the front pew of a church that I went to for a funeral service of my longtime accountant. And um, she called me over to her. And she said to me, she says, uh, I need to know who you are voting for in this primary. And if you don't want anybody to hear you, uh, just lean down and whisper in my ear. <laughs> <laughs> and, so, and I did. But when I did that, the look, she snapped her head back, and I saw this look in her eyes, her facial expression. And she said to me, I needed to hear that. And this community needs to hear from you. And that's what made me uh, move as emotionally as I did uh, with my endorsement. When she said that she needed to hear it and the community needed to hear from me. And I talked to a few people uh, before I left Columbia uh, that evening, and sure enough, uh, they were waiting to hear something from me. And so I did what I did the way I did it, uh, because I think uh, the South Carolinians uh, in the Democratic primary was waiting on somebody to validate uh, Joe Biden. They wanted to vote for him, but they did not want to uh, vote for him if... Uh, if he did not have uh, validation. So uh, I may take credit for it, but I'm not deserving of it. It's the people of South Carolina. <laughs> no, I think, I, think you're, uh, I think you deserve some of it for sure. Um, so last night when Sc Scott's critique was, was of you know, by some of the familiar ones we've heard uh, uh, of Biden, um, you know, the crime bill and other aspects of his very long record. But the larger critique was that Democrats had failed uh, African-Americans and that, uh, you know, Democrats essentially the un uh, had taken African-Americans uh, for granted. Um, how, how did that sit with you and what's your response? Because the fact of the matter is that these injustices that still exist today have existed for a very long time. And there is an impatience, particularly among younger uh, African-American voters. Um, what's your message to them? Well, my message is very clear. Um, I think that we ought to be instructed by history. Uh, I think that when you really deal with things just on an emotional level, uh, you have to take into account as to what contributes to your emotions. Uh, the fact the matter is, in 1992, when I was running for Congress, uh, I, uh, for the first time, I received my worst treatment at a gathering, town hall meeting uh, in Atlantic Beach, South Carolina, a black town with a black mayor. And I came out against mandatory minimums, mandatory minimum sentences uh, was not created in the 1994 crime bill. Uh, they were, uh, I think, the 1986 crime bill. And I came out against that. And I almost got run out of the place. I mean, these people uh, were so incensed over uh, the drug activity in their communities, they didn't want to hear that from me. Uh, and so that's why you saw uh, a lot of the Congressional Black Caucus members voting for that uh, 94 crime bill because of their experiences back with their constituents. And so what people miss is that so much that was in that crime bill, violence against women, the assault weapons ban, uh, community policing, uh, 
these things were very popular with us, and they went away when Newt Gingrich came along. Uh, and so there was some very possible, uh, 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 at the drug courts, uh, that went away. And so nobody uh, talks about what really contributed uh, to uh, mass incarceration. Uh, it was those, those safeguards that were in the legislation uh, when Newt Gingrich took over in November of 94, uh, and all those things went away. And so uh, I don't um, back away from the fact that I voted for that crime bill. Uh, Bernie Sanders voted for that crime bill. Uh, quite a few other Congressional Black Caucus members voted for it. Uh, and so uh, Tim Scott is a bit off base with that. Uh, but it's working for a lot of people. It is working for uh, within the Democratic primary. It was working as well. Uh, so I don't blame him for using it. Uh, I will say this, though. If you say that uh, Democrats take blacks for granted, I will take you back to 1964, 1965, uh, the great society programs that the, the Republicans keep saying uh, failed. Well, they did not fail. Uh, the 19, uh, 1965, look, look at what uh, Lyndon, the laws Lyndon Johnson signed uh, it, it, the legislation he signed into law back in 1965. You can start with amending the Social Security Act for Medicare and Medicaid. Uh, you can look at, um, not everybody goes back to the 65 Voting Rights Act, but I look at the Higher Education Act. Uh, I looked at Elementary Secondary Education Act. Uh, there's just a plethora of things uh, that uh, came into being that was a Democrat, a Southern Democrat. Lyndon Johnson was from Texas, and he gave uh, us the Great Society programs that are still with us today. Head Start is still there. Uh, uh, and though the, the Voting Rights Act has been gutted uh, by um, judges, uh, justices uh, that are of Trump's liking, um, how can you say that Democrats take blacks for granted? People just ignore 1965, but you can't ignore it. And that went right now through 1968 with the fair housing law that Trump is now trying to turn the clock back on the fair housing law uh, that came to us in 1968 before uh, Richard Nixon uh, was elected. So do you think that the, um, do you think that it, it, it gives Trump cover with, uh, if not minority voters, but uh, white voters uh, who are troubled by his, his, uh, his appeals to on race. Uh, does it give him cover that Scott spoke, that Haley spoke, that Herschel Walker offered his testimonial that Trump is not a, a racist? Does that, does that move the ball for Trump? I don't think words are great. Uh, but deeds uh, are greater. And I think it's uh, Trump's deeds and those of us who are going to be sharing with the voting public uh, going forward, his own words. I plan to use these words uh, as we uh, go forward in this campaign. So, no, I don't think he got covered at all. Uh, I hope uh, my Democratic colleagues uh, will take stock of that. Uh, and it's not just uh, last night, uh, you know, I'm having some hard time. I, I have three daughters. And, and um, uh, when I look at uh, a president looking in the camera and referring to an African-American woman who actually was on his staff at one time and referring to her as a dog, I can't get over that. And I don't understand how any black person can get over that. You know, I can't understand how anybody in the faith community can tolerate. I could see somebody repenting. But when you do things and you don't repent and you say that you've never felt the need to ask forgiveness and you tell me that uh, you are a fundamentalist Christian and uh, here's a guy who's never felt the need. We all 
have sinned and fallen short. And we ask for forgiveness. But here's a guy that says, I've never felt the need to be forgiven for anything. So we aren't going to let people uh, miss that going into this, uh, into this election. You don't know which side of the Bible is up. It's a problem. <laughs> Uh, one other theme that ran through, and you meant you, you sort of hinted at the suburban couple from St. Louis that oh, brandished yeah. their guns when marchers went by, and they had a very, they had a very tough message, um, very racial uh, message. Uh, but um, I, I want to ask you about what's going on right now uh, in the context of this, because what's going on in, in, in Wisconsin, for example, in Kenosha, uh, where there was this awful shooting uh, on the weekend of a young black man, but uh, and there were peaceful protests, but in the at night there was looting, there was arson, there was rioting, um, and it it seems to you know plays right into Trump's uh, message and the message of the convention, which is Democrats you know coddle coddle rioters and looters and, you know, things are out of control and uh, this is going to wash up right on your door. And he's the thin blue line, as it were, between, you know, that and these suburban communities and so on. It's not very subtle, Congressman, uh, but does it worry you? Um, yeah, I know you were very quick to jump on the defund police movement. Um, yes, I was. Um yeah, it worries me a whole lot. The last conversation I had with John Lewis uh, before he left Washington to go home for what we knew uh, was going to be his eventuality, we, uh, we talked about this. We talked about Black Lives Matter movement, and we were so pleased with the fact that it had broken through. And last uh, survey I saw said that, what, 60% uh, of the American, 70%, over 70% of the American people uh, support the Black Lives Matter movement. And John and I felt that they had broken through uh, in such a way that uh, beyond what we ever did back in the 1960s. And we were both fearful of that phrase, defund the police, and what it could do to Black Lives Matter. And we equated it to burn, baby, burn back in the 1960s. So I fear for that. Now, watching that young man take seven shots to the back, not from down the street, right as his condo within 12 inches, this guy's just pumping bullets in his body. You know, that, that's beyond the pale. And so, you know, though you don't want to see that, that was a tough thing to see. In fact, I said to someone earlier today that that to me uh, was even worse uh, than the knee to the neck. Uh, this was just, I mean, how do you do that? Yeah. You know, yeah. so, um, but I don't know that we should respond. I, I've said that violence is their game. And I learned playing sports that if the opponent ever gets you to playing his or her game, they're going to win. And so violence is their game, and we ought not play their game. Because if we play their game, they will win. If we want to win, let's play our game, the game that we know how to play, and the game we know can be successful. Don't fall in the trap of playing their game, irrespective of what may, be, uh, may have precipitated it. Let's just don't play that game. You, uh, you, you you know, you've spent a lifetime like with, uh, as participant in and bird's eye view of uh, politics in a state where race has always been uh, front and center. Do you, do you see, uh, do you see the power in what uh, they were doing yesterday by invoking this image of anarchy on the streets and so on? Yes, I do. And that's what makes me fearful. I've been watching uh, Jamie Harrison's race here. Uh, in South Carolina. Against Lindsey Graham, yeah. Yes. Uh, uh, nobody expected Jimmy Harrison to break through uh, the way he has broken through, uh, simply because he has been having a common, common sense discussion uh, with, the, with South Carolinians. 
and he has defined himself in a way that nobody thought he could. People have decided that Jamie Harrison is the kind of person that would represent me well in, in Washington, and they are not afraid of the fact uh, that his uh, complexion may not be uh, as vanilla uh, as theirs. And so uh, I am, know what they were trying to do uh, last night. And I would hope that observers of this uh, will understand what they're trying to do and not play into it. Uh, because quite frankly, uh, I think uh, that South Carolina, uh, which was the first to succeed, uh, could very well uh, be the launching pad of what would be a real new South. Now, I've been around long enough to know that um, Ralph McGill, uh, the old Atlanta Constitution, talked about a new South uh, decades ago, and John West, who was my mentor. Yes, I wanted to ask you about him. He had the New South. Uh, but this is really a genuine New South development. We're going to take a short break, and we'll be right back with more of the Axe Files. And now, back to the show. And I just want to ask you briefly about your folks. Uh, who both had such uh, admirable uh, stories. Uh, your dad uh, lost his parents when he was three and had a kind of rough road up. Um, and there was a story about him that you tell that uh, in certain ways lays bare the brutality of racism. Uh, and that is that he attended the seventh grade three times, right. not because he wasn't able or skilled or, or skillful or enough to move on but well ex explain why he had to, to be in the seventh grade three times my grad my, my dad grew up in Kershaw county south carolina and at the time he was growing up uh, they did not provide uh, education for blacks beyond the seventh grade uh, uh whites went on through the 11th grade at that time public schools uh were, went to the 11th grade. And so my dad uh, repeated the seventh grade three times. And then finally the teachers told him he just could not, they were not gonna let him back in and he was too far advanced for the other students and they would not let him come back to school. He then went, went and got a job in a bakery shop and he learned how to bake, uh, uh, but he also kept studying. Uh, and he finally, uh, studied enough, he thought, and took a college entrance exam and passed it and was admitted to Mars College in Sumter. Uh, he and my mother moved to Sumter for that express purpose because both of them wanted to go to college. And so my dad went first, but after the third year, he was called into the president's office and was told that um, they didn't have a record of his high school graduation and was not going to be allowed to go into the 12th grade, I mean, to the fourth year, uh, his senior year, uh, until he got, uh, they got his, um, his diploma. Well, he didn't have a diploma, so he never went back. And so he was denied a college education for that purpose. Yeah. Uh, the college finally, uh, I, I told that story at a speech one day, and the president of the college was there, and uh, he thought I was making that up. He came to me afterwards, he says, uh, in fact, if I had known the president of the college was sitting behind me, <laughs> I don't think I would have told the story. <laughs> but I didn't you, know he was back there. And he came up to me afterwards and he said, I never heard this before. He said, what is, you, is that true? And I told him, yes. My dad told me that. I said, he wouldn't have told me. And he, he didn't tell me until about, it was about four or five months before he passed away, before I, I knew the story. And yeah, he because did. somebody else. Uh, one of his classmates uh, kind of cued me in, and yeah. I went and asked him. Was he embarrassed, or why? Why didn't he share that story with you before? Well, what the night that I went to ask him, uh, a minister who was in a class with him 
uh, told me that story. And I called my dad that night. And I was way down in low country of South Carolina. And I drove straight back to Sumter, where he was living. I knew he, he was uh, dying with prostate cancer. Uh, and I went to his house. It was after midnight. And uh, I told him what I had heard. And with tears in his eyes, he told me uh, that he had never told uh, us that story because he didn't want any of us to ever think that there was any value in dropping out of school. And he uh -huh. thought uh, that that might have an impact. So that's why he never told me. Now, my dad to uh, died about three months after he told me the story. Your, uh, your mom was quite a force as well. She was a kind of an entrepreneur and an activist, um, uh, active in the NAACP. And, and you were as well. You were like at 12 years old, you were president of the youth NAACP. This was right in the, in the, uh, that was pre Brown versus board of education. Absolutely. Yeah. Uh, yeah, this was, uh, I was elected president of my youth council of the NAACP a little over a year, uh, before Brown v. board of education. It was before my 13th birthday. Uh, and my mother uh, was a big fundraiser for the NAACP. She was a beautician. Um, but uh, she's a beautician extraordinaire. <laughs> At one point, uh, she had 16 operators in two beauty shops. Uh, that she, um, My mom was just that kind of person. In fact, when I wrote my, uh, my memoirs, most people, uh, to them, the best chapter in the book was a chapter by my mother. Uh, and uh, she took me to the courtroom. Uh, the old court case came up of uh, Shep Nash, a lawyer over in Sumter, where we grew up, uh, sued the NAACP. And that's when the southern states set about to try to break the back of the NAACP. And in that lawsuit, uh, a young lawyer, Matthew Perry. Yeah. Uh, came to something to defend uh, the NAACP, and he was something else. My mom's closed the beauty shop uh, when they and took me down to the courtroom. She said, "I want you to see what you can be when you grow up." Matthew Perry uh, just illuminated that courtroom. He lost the case, but he won the hearts and minds of the people of Sumter, South Carolina. And when I uh, got to Congress. My first <laughs> I bill. know the story, yeah. You know the story? Yeah. Yeah. That was my tell first tell the story, yeah. Well, the story was uh, I just wanted to do something to honor Matthew Perry. Who was not just a great, he became a judge, right, as well. He was a uh, federal judge. Yeah. 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 When yeah, he became a federal judge, uh, I decided that I wanted to name uh, a courthouse for Matthew Perry. Uh, Columbia. Uh, had been designated as the site of a federal courthouse. Uh, There's going to be a third federal courthouse in Columbia. Uh, and um, I uh, got that courthouse named for Matthew Perry. Now, the, yeah, but, that, but I mean, but, but it wasn't, <laughs> there was a little complication, right? It because complication. it was right yeah. next to the Strom Thurmond courthouse and, the, and Senator Thurmond, who was around then, yeah. thought, thought the annex should be named for him as well. Yeah, you know, Thurman started making speeches right after that courthouse was designated, and he would always refer to that uh, proposed courthouse as the Strom Thurman Annex because the federal building adjacent to the site is the Strom Thurman building. Uh, and so Strom, uh, when I put the bill up, Strom opposed it. Uh, and, um, of course, I got it passed the House, but he was going to keep it from passing the Senate. Uh, and I did some research and found out that the federal building uh, with his name on it was never uh, named uh, by, the, uh, by the Congress. It was done by uh, Executive Fiat. Uh, the administrator of the Jones Services Administration named it that. And so I uh, put the word out, sent him <laughs> word by a former congressman uh, that if he did not uh, remove his objection to my legislation uh, that I was going to put up a bill in the house to name to take his name off the federal building. Uh, and of course, uh, <laughs> I knew he wouldn't pass the Senate, but it would pass the house back then. Yeah. Uh, I think it would pass the house today too. Uh, 
but yeah. uh, he removed his objection. And uh, so the Matthew J. Perry United States Courthouse stands here in Columbia. Did you guys have a conversation about it? No, I did not have a, a conversation with Strom about it. I sent him word. Uh, Through an intermediary, uh, yeah. Yeah. He must have respected the, the power play, huh? Oh, yeah. No, we <laughs> talked about it afterwards. Oh, yeah, I we see. talked about it afterwards, yeah. Uh, <laughs> Strom and I uh, got to be pretty good friends. I was very good friends with his sister, Gertrude. He had a sister that uh, I worked together uh, with his sister in the Employment Security Commission. And he always talked about how much his sister loved me. Uh, and that was the base of our relationship. So I got along well with, uh, with Strom. One of the things that came up during the campaign was he, uh, Biden was attacked because he spoke at St- uh, Strom Thurmond's funeral. And I was wondering what your thoughts were uh, on that. Because, you know, the thing was, how could you speak at a... By the way, I appreciate the fact that instead of being named after a segregationist governor, that courthouse was named after a crusading african-american attorney and judge but uh but uh, what was your reaction when uh biden came under attack for that thurman asked him to speak at his funeral yes he did and of course uh biden uh, had this relationship with strong uh much like uh, the relationship i had with him uh and i think that it's very unfair uh, for people to expect you uh, not to maintain uh, civility uh, in a legislative body. Uh, because, uh, like, you know, Democrats are in the majority in the House, but we are not in the majority in the Senate. Uh, and if you're going to get legislation passed, it's got to pass the House and the Senate. And so uh, just this morning, I spent time on con- with Congressman Johnson from Louisiana, very conservative. Uh, we're working on broadband stuff together. I think it's, it's good for people to be able to disagree, as I disagree with my current governor, but I work with him uh, in order to get legislation done uh, for South Carolina. Uh, I work with uh, Tim Scott. I'm working with him now on justice and policing. Uh, we don't agree politically, uh, but I work with him, uh, and I think that's a good thing to do. And I don't think you ought to hold it against a person uh, like Joe Biden uh, for working with people. Uh, They're sitting there with votes in their hands. And sometimes they're sitting there in the majority. And if you can't create a climate within which to work with them, uh, you aren't worth being in uh, a legislative body because legislative bodies are all about gathering people of various backgrounds and experiences and trying to find common ground. And Joe Biden has always been able to find common ground uh, to such an extent. Uh, somebody like Joe, uh, like Strom Thurmond, asked him to speak at his, his funeral. And he was requested uh, Fritz Hollins. Uh, he spoke at Fritz Hollins' funeral, and I joined him in that. And I don't think, and I had people uh, to criticize me for eulogizing Fritz Hollins. Uh, but, you know, my eulogy about Fritz Hollins was very clear. Uh, I came from the poem. Thank God a man can change. His family appreciated uh, the way we dealt with that. Mm-hmm. Because everybody knew Fritz Hollins' history since 1947. Uh, he ran as a segregationist and he served as a segregationist. But thank God a man can change. Yeah. He changed. You went on uh, to uh, South Carolina State in Orangeburg. You mentioned John Lewis earlier. Your relationship went back to then because you were also a civil rights activist. You were trying to desegregate the lunch counters in Orangeburg. You were arrested uh, at the time, and you were one of the early uh, organizers of the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee, which, uh, along with uh, John Lewis. Uh, Tell me, uh, first of all, about that period of time uh, and uh, your experience in, in, in trying to desegregate uh, these lunch counters, and and, your, and and then tell me about how you came to know uh, Lewis. Well, John Lewis and I first met in October 1960. We were both 20-year-old college students. Uh, he was in school down in uh, Nashville at the, uh, I think it was the American Bible College, I've got the name of it, before you went uh, to Fisk. He, he was down there, and I was at South Carolina State. 
and we all met uh, in, I think it was April of 1960 up at Shaw University uh, up in Raleigh, North Carolina. Uh, and uh, of course, uh, all of the uh, activities that started out on February 1, 1960 up at North Carolina A&T, and started spreading throughout the South. The city interest something uh, that just caught on. Uh, and so uh, we decided that um, things shouldn't be willy-nilly. We ought to organize this stuff. So we met in Atlanta at Mohawk College in October 1960 to formally organize uh, the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee. And that's when I met John Lewis. And that's also the weekend that I met Martin Luther King, Jr. And we set up with Martin Luther King Jr. that night for what was supposed to be an hour meeting starting around 10 o'clock. I came out of that meeting almost 4 o'clock the next morning, uh, and it was a Saul to Paul experience for me. Now, I tell everybody, John Lewis was different from all of us. We accepted nonviolence as a, as a tactic. Uh, John internalized nonviolence. It became a way of life for him. Uh, and when John, last, uh, John Lewis was ousted as chairman of SNCC, uh, which is the nickname we had to a nonviolent committee, he became uh, the, the director. Not immediately. Now, he went up to New York for a year with the Field Foundation, but he came back to Atlanta and took over the voter education project uh, that was sponsored by the Southern Regional Council. I was down in Charleston at the time, and I became chair or the Charleston Voter Education Project. So John and Lewis and I have worked together registering blacks to vote all over the South. Uh, I concentrated mostly in South Carolina. He uh, was the regional director. And then of course, uh, after a stint on city council, he ran for uh, Congress, lost the first time, uh, and he ran again in 1986 and got elected. Uh, and, of course, I joined him in Congress in 1992. And we kept that friendship throughout all those years. And both of us, uh, for whatever reason, married librarians. His wife was a professional <laughs> librarian, and so was mine. And they became fast friends. And so John and I enjoyed that relationship right up uh, to his death. That must have been terribly difficult to say goodbye. It was. It was. In fact, I couldn't sleep that night, and I um, got up early uh, the next morning and did something I've not been able to do since. I got my device and, and put it, stacked it on some books, and I went out in my backyard, uh, and I uh, did, I figured out how to work that device, and I did a, uh, my farewell to John, uh, and I have not been able to do it since, but he... Um, it kind of went viral. Yeah, yeah. You, um, you, you mentioned your wife, Emily. You, you met during those sit-ins. <laughs> met in jail, yeah. Emily and I <laughs> met in jail. Uh, I was, uh, had been incarcerated around 10, 10.30 that morning, and around 5 o'clock in the afternoon, she came uh, uh, to uh, the jail along with other students who had not been arrested that day because we had filled up all the jails. They could not... Oh, they run out of jails. They put us in cow pens. Uh, over 300 students were arrested that day, uh, but there's about 5,000 students marching. Uh, and they all went back to the camps. And some of them uh, came back to the jail to, uh, to bring us food. And she came toward me with a hamburger in her hands. Uh, I reached for her. She pulled it back, broke the hamburger in half. <laughs> Give me half of it. She ate the other half, and I was so grateful that I married her 18 months later. <laughs> you went sharing hamburgers for the next 60-some-odd years, huh? Yes, uh, yeah, uh, 58 of which we were married. Uh, we stayed married over 58 years and uh, had a 60-year relationship. In fact, we met in, like, in uh, March 15th, uh, and the following October 15th when I met John Lewis. Uh, so those 60 years with John, uh, I also shared with Emily. We're going to take a short break, and we'll be right back with more of the Axe Files.
And now, back to the show. You uh, spent a lot of the 60s uh, in, in various uh, community-based roles, uh, Big Brother programs, developing youth uh, programs, working for the South Carolina Farm Workers uh, Commission. But you mentioned uh, John C. West. And yep. um, you you ran for the legislature and lost. I should point that out. I, I can't skim by the bad stuff in the in the narrative here. Sure. Uh, how did the uh, how did how did that sit with you? You ended up losing three times and running for public office before you ever mm-hmm. before you went to Congress. How right. did you process those losses? Did you just see them as a step in the road or was there a time when you said, well, maybe this isn't for me? Well, no, I never felt that this was not for me. I, I always felt that, that politics was my calling. And um, uh, right out of the sit-ins, I started working, as, as I said, with the Voter Education Project. Uh, then in 1969, I ran a campaign for the first African-American uh, to get elected to Charleston City Council since June divide. And when I uh, uh, was selected to run that campaign, uh, I went to sit down with St. Julian one day because I really didn't know him and I wanted to get to know him because uh, I'm going to manage this campaign. And when I started asking questions about him, about him, uh, he finally asked questions about me. Uh, and when I did, uh, he says, where are you from? And I told him, and I, he asked me about my wife and I told him, he says, wait a minute. He says, are you married to PJ England's daughter? I said, yeah. He said, man, that's my cousin. <laughs> so so we, uh, that just struck up a, a great relationship. And so I got uh, really uh, deeply involved in South Carolina, it's this time Charleston politics. And so uh, I ran for the state legislature uh, a year later, won the Democratic primary, but I had run as an insurgent. And Therefore, I did not have the support of the powers that be. Uh, and so because I didn't, though I won the primary, they did not come on board to support me uh, in the general. Uh, and therefore, uh, I lost the general uh, after having been declared the winner. Around 10 o'clock in the evening, uh, I was told the next morning uh, that uh, rather than being a 500-vote winner, somebody had forgotten to carry one. And I was a 500 vote loser. Well, at least you got way. at least you got a good night's sleep. Yeah, <laughs> not really. That, that my, my, uh, a reporter came to my house at 3:30 in the morning. Uh, so, uh, oh, is that right? That's how you got the news. <laughs> yeah. So you went, you but you went from there. You went to work for John C. West. He had been the lieutenant governor. He became the governor. You were the first black aide to a South Carolina governor since Reconstruction. And tell me about that. Tell me about him. Well, uh, John West was an interesting guy uh, who uh, a lot of people didn't know. It. John West was a member of the NAACP. He joined the NAACP in Clarendon County, where Brown v. Board of Education started at Briggs VA. He was a member of the Manning uh, branch of the NAACP. But when I lost that race, and a reporter asked me what happened, and the rumor was floating around town as to what happened to those votes. Uh, I said I didn't get enough votes. And the reporter pressed me, but I would never change that line. It looks like I didn't get enough votes. So that became the headline in the newspapers that Thursday morning. John West was coming through Charleston on his way out to Kiowa, which was a hunting preserve at the time, uh, for a little R&R, and he saw the headline. And he called me, and he told me we will not leave our wounded on the battlefield. Uh, and he invited me to his staff, uh, and uh, I've never looked back since. He was, as you say, kind of one of the faces of the New South. He was, uh, you know, relatively progressive on race issues. Uh, you created a, a human relation. He created a, a state human relations commission, and you were chosen as a as the commissioner. Uh, and you spent 18 years there. Well, I, stayed, I was on his staff for three years before that. Mm-hmm. Uh, I was on his personal staff. And, and then he, uh, my first job on his staff was to uh, uh, 
uh, he helped form that commission. Because another thing happened in 1969, uh, it, we had a the hospital strike. What about, oh, I thought you were going to say the Orangeburg Massacre. No, the Orangeburg Massa uh, Massacre 68, took yeah. place some years, mm -hmm. uh, uh, you know, before. Mm -hmm. uh, but the hospital strike was in 1969. The Orangeburg Massacre, I think, was 68. Yes, right. Uh, right. Um, but that hospital strike, led to some real, or even martial law uh, was declared in Charleston. Uh, for 100 days, that strike lasted. So John West got elected in 1970. Uh, uh, we had uh, the Orangeburg Massacre in the background, the hospital strike. Then in 1970 is when uh, South Carolina was ordered to integrate its schools. The schools still were not integrated after 1954. Uh, 16 years, the schools were not integrated. And then we were told that either integrate in September or lose federal funds. That led to a big riot at a school in Lamar, South Carolina, where buses were overturned. Uh, and this was in September uh, of uh, 1970. And so you got 68, 69, 70, serious racial issues. John West running for governor against uh, a guy named Albert Watson, the Republican from Lexington County. Everybody thought Albert Watson was going to win. Uh, but John West eked out an 18,000 vote victory statewide and became uh, governor. Uh, and in his inaugural address, he pledged a colorblind administration and set out to keep that pledge. And that's what led to me being on his staff. And then later on, um, uh, I uh, became the commissioner of the Human Affairs Commission. A lot of people think I was the first commissioner there. I, I, I was the second. I was the first member of his staff. But we hired somebody else to run the commission. Uh, and then when that person left, uh, the commission asked me uh, to come take it over because the legislature was trying to get rid of it. And they thought uh, that I had enough of a relationship with the legislature that I could save the agency. They didn't want the first agency run by a black person uh, to be eliminated. And that's back to what you were talking about earlier about Joe Biden. Uh, these are very conservative people who uh, were trying to get rid of the agency with a black person running it. And so my job was to try to save that agency. Uh, and it meant I had to go, go to legislators that I didn't agree with on much. Some of them I didn't agree with on anything. We saved the agency. And you said, like I said, you spent 18 years at the agency. And I, I'm wondering what the, that experience was like in a state that has such a hard history on race relations. You probably went to work every day past the Confederate flag. You maybe drove past uh, Confederate monuments. Um, and uh, the Confederacy was celebrated. I mean, it was the, you know, obviously South Carolina sort of the, 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 the was core to all that history. Sure. Um, how, how, did, how did you deal with all of that? And how did you deal with the pace of change which obviously wasn't uh, nearly, and still isn't nearly fast enough. Look, you know, John Lewis took a lot of licks to the head. But many people back in the 60s were spat on. When I was marching, sitting in, down in uh, Orangeburg, I've seen eggs smashed uh, in people's hair. Uh, I've seen people spat upon. I've seen water hoses turned on people. Uh, and, of course, South Carolina is a little bit different from Mississippi and Alabama. You never saw cattle prongs used in South Carolina. You never saw snarling dogs in South Carolina. South Carolinians were a little bit different, but just as steadfast in their beliefs in the Confederacy. So when I sat uh, in the governor's office, the Confederate flag was flying on top of the state house. And so when I went to the Human Affairs Commission, uh, there was a state senator uh, who still lives. He's a, a neighbor of mine, uh, Kate Patterson, 
took to the floor of the House one day uh, before he went to the Senate and spoke out against uh, the Confederate flag flying on top of the State House. And all hell broke loose. His life was threatened. Uh, in fact, a guy got arrested and spent time for threatening. I came to his defense, but I did it differently. I went and did some extensive research, uh, which I usually do with stuff like this. And I discovered something like I did on the Strom Thurmond's building. I discovered uh, that that flag on top of the State House was not the Confederate flag. It was a battle flag. It's the Tennessee flag. Bedford, Big Bedford Forest uh, popularized that flag. Uh, that flag became popular because of going with the wind, the movie. But the Confederate flag, the stars and bars, is the flag of a circle of stars with three bars. And so I wrote an editorial, uh, an op-ed piece that was published in the Charleston Post and Courier, and I called it Romancing That Flag. And I gave the history of the flag on top of the state house and said, that's not the Confederate flag. It never was a Confederate flag. Always was rejected by the Confederacy. Uh, and um, a lot of people didn't like that. <laughs> and I ended up my last five years uh, in state government. I had a full-time uh, law enforcement agency with me uh, whenever uh, I traveled. Uh, in fact, there was a period of time when law enforcement people would stay in my house with my wife and children uh, when I was not at home uh, because of the threats I got because of that flag. But it revealed something uh, that a lot of people uh, did not appreciate until they took it off the state house. When they decided to take the flag off the state house and put it on the state grounds, they put a different flag on the state grounds. It wasn't the flag that was on top of the state house. Uh, even the one they put on uh, uh, on the grounds was not the right flag. That was the flag of Northern Virginia. <laughs> <laughs> that's that's funny. Finally, in '92, as you mentioned, you went to uh, to Congress. You've you've obviously risen steadily uh, through the ranks there. You're the the third ranking Democrat uh, in the House. I want to ask you a couple of questions about this. Uh, one is, what do you? What are the things? I had Speaker Pelosi here a, a, a week ago, but you know, you mentioned voting rights earlier. You renamed the Voting Rights Act that the House passed, the John Lewis, John R. Lewis Voting Rights Act. Um, do you anticipate that will be law? Uh, presuming yes. Biden and the Senate win, and what what other and, and what other sort of signature bills that you think are important to you? Uh, will that have been bottled up uh, will be law uh, if uh, this if Biden is elected and a Democratic Senate is elected? I think the number one thing ought to be the Voting Rights Act. And I really think that even though I'm very pleased with what we've done with the Voting Rights Restoration Act that we have now called the John R. Lewis Voting Rights Act, uh, I really think uh, we ought to... Um, uh, took a hard look uh, at the things in that act uh, that we could do in order to ensure uh, that we have uh, voting uh, made easier, uh, not to leave things up to the states um, as we've done. Uh, if you remember, uh, when we uh, lowered the voting age to 18, uh, the states did not necessarily agree with that. So we said, okay, uh, but in federal elections, you will be able to vote uh, when you turn 18. Now, states didn't want to set up a two-tier system, and so then they decided to lower it at the state levels. But uh, there are a lot of things we can do for federal laws uh, that may be left up to state for state laws to do. So I want us to take a hard look at that bill and make sure, especially if Biden is elected, and we get a, 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 a Senate, a Democratic Senate, then we are going to take a real strong look at the Voting Rights Act to make sure that the things we are now experiencing uh, are done. Then I want us to take a hard look at targeting resources. We, we like to study people. 
the Census Bureau says that um, uh, any community where 20% uh, or more of the populations were stuck beneath the, the poverty level of the last 30 years is a persistent poverty uh, community. So that's the thing I want to do, look at, right now I call it 10, 20, 30, uh, targeting at least 10% of all the resources that are appropriated into those communities where 20% or more of the populations been stuck beneath the poverty level for the last 30 years. That's number two. Number three, I want to see us pass a broadband bill uh, that will uh, put broadband into every home. Just like we did with electricity in the 20th century, we know what electricity uh, did for rural communities. Broadband will do the same thing today. Then number four, I want to see us pass uh, a legislation that put a community, a federally qualified community health center within commuting distance of everybody in the country. We can do that for around $65 billion. We can do broadband for around $86 billion. I think that those four things will be priority with me. It will be life-changing. We will do broadband, we'll do in the 21st century what rural electricity did in the 20th century. Those would be my top four things. I like to do things in threes, but in this instance, <laughs> you're gonna uh, gonna make I'm going to make an exception. Huh? Uh, do you think D.C. statehood is something that would be seri will be seriously taken up anytime soon? I, I think it will be uh, seriously taken up. I don't know if you'll be able to get beyond the filibuster in the Senate. Do you think they should uh, do away with the filibuster? If we do away with the filibuster? No, I mean, yes. do you think they should do away with the filibuster? I'm not too sure about that. Uh, I'm really, I run hot and cold uh, on that. Uh, I do believe, though, uh, that uh, Mr. McConnell uh, has taught us uh, that um, uh, maybe it's time for us to, to do what's necessary to get our agenda passed. Uh, and if that's what it takes, uh, I might be inclined to be for it. And if there were no filibuster, you think D.C. statehood is a, re is a real possibility? Yes, sir. Yeah. Absolutely. Now, you know, uh, it may require doing what we did with uh, Hawaii and Alaska. Uh, uh, you know, this whole balance could be still holding on to the remnants of the Kansas-Nebraska Act and the, the Missouri Compromise, all these things that we do uh, to maintain balance. Uh, we may have to do something like that. Uh, and, you know, some people may uh, see uh, Puerto Rico uh, mm -hmm. as, and, Absolutely. Yeah. and the district coming along as a twofer. Um, finally, the, the election itself. How you, we, we've talked about voting and voting rights. How concerned are you about the way voting is going to come down in this election? I'm very concerned about that. Uh, I'm extremely concerned about that. That's why... I have been yelling, and I'm going to yell even louder going forward, that we need uh, to make October election month. I think that uh, some people will start voting around mid-September. Some states will start that. And so it seems to me that we ought to have voting in person starting uh, whenever the states say in South Carolina, October 5th will be the day that um, uh, absentee voting begins. Uh, and we ought to fund absentee voting in person. I have been yelling that the Colorado model ought to be followed all over the country, where they put ballot boxes uh, in places that are convenient, uh, all around the jurisdiction, whatever it may be, county or city, uh, rather than having people line up uh, with long lines uh, in this uh, era of social distancing, uh, we need uh, to stretch out voting over the whole month of October, uh, which will culminate uh, on uh, November the 3rd. Uh, so that there are a lot of people who ain't going to put their uh, votes in the mail. Uh, I always vote early, absentee, in person. Um, I have never mailed it. I shouldn't say I never, I may have mailed in a ballot once, uh, but I don't remember ever mailing in a ballot. Kamala Harris is the vice presidential nominee now. What, 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 what is the, what kind of conversations did you have with 
Vice President Biden leading up to that. And what does it mean to you personally? And what does it mean to the country? It means a lot to me. I'm the father of three daughters. So you can imagine uh, what this means to me. Uh, they were so in uh, to having an African-American woman uh, on this ticket. Uh, my late wife uh, was in uh, to having an African-American woman uh, on this ticket. And so uh, I'm not um, uh, backing away from that. And Kamala is just a great choice. Um, she uh, has been tested statewide uh, several times. She has been tested uh, in, uh, in the political arena, in the presidential stage. You know, as I was going around the state um, prior to the February 29th uh, primary, one of the reasons she never got traction in South Carolina is because so many people saw her just where she is today. I had people that said to me all the time, a dream ticket would be Biden and Harris. And so this is not anything new. And so I was asked about this. You know, she's a graduate of the HBCU, mm -hmm. and she's a member of an African-American sorority. Well, I'm a graduate of HBCU too, South Carolina State. We're both we're in the same conference uh, for years, and I don't, uh, I don't like them. Uh, the <laughs> Howard Bison. But you were able to overcome that, huh? I'm, I'm going to be a Howard Bison all the way through uh, November third. <laughs> and I'm going to tell you something else. I'm an Omega, but I don't mind being the AKA uh, through November third uh, <laughs> as well. So I think having her on this ticket uh, revs up so many traditions in the African-American community. Because fraternities and sororities in the African-American community are civic organizations. They're not social uh, organizations uh, like they are in the white community. See, when we were coming along, we could not be, uh, uh, we couldn't be in the Lions Club and the Rotary Club. And so fraternities and sororities uh, were social on college campuses, but they are civic uh, in the communities. And that's why a graduate chapter of these fraternities and sororities are civic organizations. They're not social. Mm -hmm. And so uh, to have uh, a member of the, uh, one that we call the Divine Nine, means a lot to black people. Mm -hmm. uh, having an HBCU uh, honored this way means a lot uh, to black people uh, because we couldn't go to those schools. And so they are very proud of us. So we, we're going to do everything we can to make Joe Biden proud of having selected her. You are a feisty 80 years old. Mm -hmm. How long can you keep at this? How long do you want to keep at this? Do you see transitioning out? The whole leadership of the House is, is in their 80s now. Absolutely. Kind of extraordinary for a party that has you know, such a youthful bent to it and base to it. What what are what are your plans? Well, I'm not making any plans right now. Uh, I you know I'm an avid golfer. I still golf sometimes 36 holes a day. I work as hard as I possibly can. I still have relatively good health, but I feel that um, it won't be long before I spend more time playing golf. Uh, <laughs> and uh, we'll see. I'm gonna let the constituents and my my children. Uh, tell me when you think it's time for me to go. I'm not going <laughs> to argue with them. If one of them ever said to me, Dad, we think it's time for you to quit, uh, if I've not already quit, uh, I won't argue with them at all. Yeah, I'd put them ahead of the constituents. You don't want your yeah, constituents absolutely. to be the ones to ask you to go. Yeah. All right, Congressman, it's great to be with you. Thank you. Well, thank you so much for Good having me. Good to see you again. Okay, buddy. Thank you for listening to The Axe Files. Brought to you by the University of Chicago Institute of Politics and CNN Audio. The executive producer of the show is Emily Stanitz. The show is also produced by Miriam Annenberg, Jeff Fox, Hannah McDonald, and Allison Siegel. And special thanks to our partners at CNN, including Courtney Coop, Ashley Lusk, and Megan Marcus. For more programming from the IOP, visit politics.uchicago.edu.
Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com.